So if you're listening to podcasts in general, you're probably a very good looking and motivated person. (laughs) But in some cases, you can be motivated and yet at the same time, you can still be pulled down by acute procrastination. Maybe that's you. That was definitely me. And this is the second solo episode talking about my story, particularly in my first year in my career at Arthur Murray Dance Studios, and I hope you enjoy it. My name is Chris Lynham. I am the host of Off the Floor, and this is episode 18. What happens when you combine business, pop culture, and at least five analogies to ballroom dancing? You get Off the Floor, a podcast to help you get to that next step in your career or your tango. Here's our host, Chris Lynham. When I look back at my first year as a professional at Arthur Murray Dance Studio, I wonder how I survived. There's a book called Switch that I think everybody should read. It's by Dan and Chip Heath. And in the book, they talk about the power of decision making and then all of the things that go into it. So the first thing that we're going to look at is this analogy that they use in the book, and it's the elephant and the writer. And this originally was penned by a professor named Jonathan Haidt from the University of Virginia in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis. And the whole idea is that you've got two systems in your brain. You've got the planner and you've got the doer. Maybe a little closer to home is you've got the the planner is the person that sets the alarm early and says, I'm going to wake up really early in the morning to finish that essay. Or I'm going to wake up really early and make a great breakfast and I'm going to run to the gym. And then the doer is the one that hits the snooze button eight times and says, I'll do it tomorrow. And you never do. In that case, the doer is the elephant and the writer is the planner. See, we all have the the best intentions when it comes to what we plan. And it's the doer that kind of like will dictate really what happens. So in this case, the writer on the elephant kind of has a plan that sort of guides the elephant and the elephant might go along with it but the elephant can trump and veto anything that the writer really is suggesting that's the power of like the marketing campaign which is our comfort zone this internal engine that historically has been dominating and it really just takes herculean efforts to be able to get that doer or that elephant under control In my case, my elephant had been really calling all the shots in terms of what I was doing, where I was going, my career path. It was one thing right after the other. So knowing that, there's a sequence of events that really got my elephant to start running in the right direction. If you imagine police attack dogs chasing you, you'd probably run a lot faster. In this case, maybe it was like a bunch of mice were chasing this big elephant. The whole idea is that my elephant really got moving and it started when my parents pulled me and my brother aside and they said, we're moving and at our new house, we will not have rooms for you, which was a really nice way of saying, get your own place, you deadbeat degenerates. So my brother and I banded together and we tried to get a condo or an apartment. We were trying to get anything that we could. We applied everywhere, but because we had both just started our jobs, he had started working as a network engineer and I had started at Arthur Murray, we couldn't get approved anywhere. And so through a strange sequence of events, I end up dating a girl who offers me a spot to stay and my brother secretly behind the scenes he ended up negotiating a deal with my parents to pay rent to live at their new home. <laughs> I didn't find out about that till later. I'm glad I didn't know. Now, here's the, the, the funny and sort of sad part about this 
new living situation for me is that the girl I was dating at the time, this was her very first bachelorette pad with her sister. They had both graduated from college. This is something that they had both been planning for a long time. They got an apartment in a little community where another one of their friends had an apartment and then all of these girls would go out and they would do things together and it was like an extension of college and I came and ruined it all. And so I would try my best to stay out of the way, but I was getting nothing but eye daggers from the older sister because I was really throwing off the whole bachelorette vibe. Now, this was just one more domino that kind of tipped in the right direction for me that I realized, looking back on it, I am incredibly grateful for. I really don't think that I would have been able to survive, like literally survive, on my own because I had no place to go. And so I was essentially couch surfing, for lack of a better term, in my first few months as a dance teacher at Arthur Murray. So for me, at the time, it wasn't a situation of I'm going to be working and trying my best to go from making some money to making more money. It was a battle of I need to go from making no money with no place to live to making enough money to have a place to live. And so it was more on like a basic survival element that I think kind of triggered this first sense of urgency that I experienced in my job. Now, during this time, while I was training, if I backtrack just a little bit, during my training program, this was an unpaid internship. And so it was essentially kind of like who can go the longest without eating that much. People are paid during this training program. But at the time that I did, and it sounds like walking uphill in the snow five miles each way uh, when I talk about it, but we were not paid. And so that was a little bit of a challenge. So during my training program, I was getting instruction from all of the staff and I wasn't a member of the staff, so I couldn't go back into the the break room or anything like that. I would still show up and it was almost like I was one step above a regular student. I would go in during the afternoons. Someone had told me very early on, I think it was just one of the teachers that was doing the session. They said, hey, if you're ever late, just don't even bother coming back ever again because you're pretty much gone. And uh, I'll never forget on my way to one of the training sessions one day, I had a blow out on the freeway. It was the first time it ever happened to me. It was like just something right out of the movies. And it was in my old Mustang and I was on the side of the road and going to change this tire. And of course, it's the one day where I'm wearing a white dress shirt and getting like choked up. I'm under the impression that this is my last day because I'm definitely going to be late. And I remember having to walk to a payphone and calling the studio. And I was like trying to like keep myself together. And uh, I was like, I'm not going to be able to make it there. And I'm thinking like, they're just going to hang up on me or something like that. And they are like, yeah, just change your shirt and get here when you can. You know, they're really cool about it. So, but one thing that I started to notice was like there would be one person that would train us like one day and then the next day would be somebody totally different. And so I'm thinking, wow, this is a pretty diverse staff. I mean, I'm seeing somebody new, but then I wouldn't see them again. It was almost like a horror movie or maybe a mafia movie where like one at a time the cast kind of gets picked off. And uh, systematically what was happening was they were cutting back some of the staff that just weren't a fit for the studio anymore. The owner of the studio had been out. She had had a baby and there was a lot of people that had kind of bad attitudes and little by little the supervisor there Bobby he had carte blanche to do what he needed to do and so he was just pulling the Tony Soprano on each person and so by the time I ended up on staff about half the staff was gone and so immediately when I became a teacher the expectation was a little higher than what it normally would be 
So like any other normal human being, of course, my writer wanted the job, but my elephant was going to try to ruin it whenever it possibly could. <laughs> and so here are some of the things that started to happen that fortunately rerouted my elephant and stopped it from taking over and ruining everything. So one day I'm now a full-fledged teacher and then a guy walks into the studio, not unlike myself, and it's almost like a scene in an old west movie where some guy comes in and he's like on the wrong turf or you know it's somebody some outlaw and Clint Eastwood's in there, of course, and everyone's just kind of locked eyes on this one bandit that's walking in. In this case, it was just me locked eyes with this guy as he's walking in across the dance floor. And he gets a clipboard and he sits down and I'm trying to determine, did he fill out a student clipboard or is he filling out an application? So I watched this guy go to the back room with a smile on his face and Bobby has a smile on his face. And my elephant is now mixing a cocktail of cortisol and adrenaline. And I feel threatened on the most lizard-brained caveman levels. And all I'm thinking is, who is this guy and why is he on my turf? And so as soon as he left, I walk up to Bobby and I essentially ask him, who is that guy and why is he here? And Bobby looks at me and he says he's a teacher from another dance studio and he wants to work here because I really need to get an experienced instructor around here. And so in not so many words, it was a gut punch that I absolutely needed. And he wasn't really punching me. He was punching my elephant. <laughs> but he was... And I always look back on that and wonder if it was all just a sham, like maybe it was like some dude that he paid $12 to come down and just do five minutes of work to fill out an application to create an elaborate ruse just to motivate me to action, <laughs> just to stop being an idiot. And that was another domino that fell and immediately sent me into this frenzy of trying to create value and worth on the team that I was working in. And this is where now some of these things start to combine together. This is during that time where I'm sleeping at my girlfriend's house and I was trying to get away from the older sister with the eye daggers. So these two things came together in a perfect way. And my goal was to try and leave the apartment at or before the older sister woke up and head to the studio and practice my butt off which would kill two birds with one stone. First bird would be, I would get away from the older sister and try to just shield myself from, from that as much as possible. But most importantly, I would be practicing and creating enough value and hopefully making more money so that way I could eventually get my own place. On top of that, what I would do is I would stay after work because I knew that the bachelorette pad was there, but I worked much later hours and so if I just stayed a few hours extra then I might get back with enough time to hang out with my girlfriend and maybe late enough that the older sister was already in her room or maybe already asleep. I look back on that time and I realized that if my career had started in slightly better circumstances I definitely wouldn't be where I am today. I think it was the adversity of that situation, the fact that I've got eye daggers and then I've got this other guy who potentially could replace me and those things combined together really forced this development to take place. On top of that, another thing took place and that was more staff got let go. It got to a point where it was literally like a season of Survivor. I mean, it was one person after another, and the final blow came when our most experienced teacher and her friend, both on staff, had been there for a while, were let go. 
to let you know just how hardcore this maneuver was, not only was this person really experienced, but this person was also my boss's wife. And he was looking out for the environment to the degree that he was willing to let his wife walk and go teach at another place right down the street. And now if you want to talk about imposter syndrome, here's Bobby and here's me and here's my training partner, Christina. We're both essentially the the two key teachers in the entire school alongside Bobby. And we had this conversation and, and he explained to us what was going on. He said, we've got all these people down the street that are more experienced They have some of the students have started taking lessons over there and all of them think that you guys are too inexperienced to be able to deliver the kind of result that they want to have. The difference is that we're going to do this as a team and we're going to build a great environment and we're going to build a community and a culture. And together, if we create this team, the team can do so much more than those individuals can do right down the street. And now this sense of purpose really started to trickle in. I I started to feel like I was fighting for something bigger. It kind of called on some of my team sports DNA. It was like what you would do, you know, in basketball, you'd, you'd have like a full court press. And if one person missed their assignment in this full court press, then now you are really exposed. I mean, you have your whole team stretched out across the entire court to try and get a turnover and, and play really good defense and to force the ball back into your hands. But if somebody penetrates beyond that, then now you're completely exposed. I mean, half your your team is on the opposite side of the court. And it really made me think of that. I mean, our team was stretched as thin as could possibly be stretched. And yet, because we all work together, that full court press mentality is really what made us successful. But also because we knew the purpose behind it. I mean, that conversation is like forever etched in my mind to know that there are people out there and they're right down the street and they're more experienced than you and they they are saying these things about you and this is what the perception is like that kind of stuff oh man it just lit a fire it lit like one of those signal fires from the lord of the rings where you can see it from (laughs) from really far away it's like that fire we haven't lit that warning fire in a thousand years you know it was like my elephant had never been that fired up ever not since basketball and it wasn't that long before that one of my best friends duran wilson he went away to college and the entire time that he was away i just couldn't not think about what it must be like to to go away to college and i was so envious of that to be able to go someplace and to to live on campus and the entire experience that you kind of fantasize about when you're watching those movies and then to come back with a degree and the allure of the jobs that you could get when you have that degree and i remember one night watching the movie the firm tom cruise and he's a lawyer but in the first like 10 minutes of the movie you see him gutting it out bootstrapping in law school and I think they even like celebrate with some really bad Chinese food and the whole idea is that all of this is the primer all of this is the setup for the windfall that's going to come afterwards if I just do these extra hours now then it's going to pay off later and something clicked there And I immediately started thinking about my job in my first year as a university. In fact, I started to treat those early hours and the late hours, all the extra hours I was putting in, all the extra practice time, it now kind of had a theme behind it as I was bootstrapping. I was away at school. In fact, even when my friends tried to call me to hang out, I wouldn't hang out with them. I treated it like I was away at some school, like in Alaska or something, and even though it was right down the street. But I really treated it like it was my university. 
And I kept saying to myself, if I was in law school right now, where would I be on a Friday night? Would I be out partying with everybody or would I be hitting the books? Because I know that if I was in law school, that people would be relying on me. They would be expecting me to come home with that degree and not just coming home with with great party stories. And so that's what I did. That summer, things really started to develop and eventually I got my own apartment and it was not that glorious, but it felt glorious. I joke around all the time and I say that this apartment was like one shade above a crack house. It was kind of like an apartment where people's old apartment furniture goes to die. (laughs) There were all of these couches in our living room and it was probably at least three extra couches than was necessary. There was uh, just a a series of rusty bikes on the balcony. We might as well have not have had a balcony. Um, It was like two garage sales exploded and all of the remains just were in our apartment and uh, and my two roommates were both I kid you not they were both women shoe salesmen and they both drank a lot of alcohol and all they would do when they'd get home from work is they would just complain about how hard the racket is for women shoe sales <laughs> and uh, and so I had another reason to stay working really late because anytime I was around these guys it was super depressing and so it was one of those places where you kind of avoided each other at all costs or at least that's what I did so in that book switch Dan and Chip Heath say that changes often fail because the writer simply can't keep the elephant on the road long enough to reach the destination the elephant's hunger for instant gratification is the opposite of the writer's strength which is the ability to think long term to plan to think beyond the moment all the things that your pet elephant can't do so I don't know if you remember any of those dating shows that they used to show on MTV some really quality family programming and there would be these captions and they'd show all these different like funny snarky comments that would be made while you're watching this first date kind of playing out you're definitely sitting there trying to decide whether there's going to be a second date or not if the guy's going to kiss her or not or if the entire time she's just trying to think of a really smooth way of turning this guy down and slamming the door in his face. So truthfully, there was a part of me through that first six months where I was trying to figure out how I was going to gently ease my way out of my job at Arthur Murray. I was thinking about what I would say. I was thinking about what was more important to me. I was hoping that everyone would understand my big picture vision. And then little by little, it was like this date on one of those shows where at the beginning, it seemed for sure that there wasn't going to be a second date. And then little by little, all of these different maneuvers started taking place. And bit by bit, my elephant got nudged back onto the path. And then one of the big ones came. And it came in the form of pre-teens, or maybe teens. It came in the form of adolescence, not mine, but my students. And teaching them was an absolute thrill. They were my first consistent students that I ever had. They were the first students that I really looked at as protégés. And it really started to uncover this love that I had for teaching. And I poured everything into these guys And it was so wonderful to watch them both mature and to grow up. And they were just so much fun to have around the studio. And then one day, Kim comes in and she's by herself. And they normally would come in at the same time. And Kim comes in and she's crying. And I'm like, where's David? And she says, 
David was, was sitting on the back of a motorcycle and they crashed and she's really broken up about it and I'm I'm thinking the worst and and as I'm consoling her and I'm like it's gonna be fine I'm really glad that you came in we can dance we can get your mind off of it and then I hear that ding that bell that I cannot get out of my mind the bell of the front door opening up at Arthur Murray in San Jose and then I hear someone running across the dance floor and here comes David in the most mangled looking homemade sling something right out of like a Vietnam movie and he's all all scraped up and he's like man I'm so sorry so sorry I'm late man I got in this wicked crash <laughs> and and here's a guy that shows up with his arm mangled I'm I mean he looks like he's coming directly from the scene of the accident and he's apologizing for being late for his lesson with me as a side note, the imposter syndrome is like a real thing. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. You could be a professional athlete and you could be really good and there's still going to be the imposter syndrome. There's still going to be this feeling like there's going to be other veterans out there that are going to be better than you, regardless. And this was one of the first things that chipped away at that barrier that made me feel like I was not worthy of being considered a professional teacher. This was the moment where I felt like these are two people that are actually relying on me. Like they're listening to me. And so for someone to apologize for being late to our lesson after getting in a motorcycle crash, you know, that was a big moment for me. And we still had the lesson. I mean, it was crazy. We, you know, he did everything with the opposite hand, but that really was a huge milestone. It wasn't that long afterwards where a really big moment took place that kind of capped everything off. So in Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, they talk about the transformation that a hero goes through. And in my case, you know, I'm going through this transformation in this first year, especially as a civilian becoming an Arthur Murray instructor and professional dancer. And there's this part where he meets temptation. And this is the part where I met temptation. Now, all through the summer, I had started to really develop a rapport with the students. It took some time. <laughs> there, was a, there was a lot of work and effort put in there, which I am very, very appreciative of, but I started to really find my, my niche in group classes and I really felt like that was my opportunity to use my personality and to think on the fly and to be witty and try to be funny and keep it really entertaining and I treated every Wednesday night we would have this lineup of group classes and Friday night would be the same thing and I would treat that as my show and then from time to time like I would have some more advanced people that would start to show up in my beginner class and then one couple that showed up was my boss's couple that he taught for a long time and uh, it was Mr. and Mrs. Freitas I remember feeling a lot of anxiety about teaching this couple because they had been taking lessons for a really long time. They also kind of had this demeanor too. They were a lot like anybody who really only wants to deal direct with the manager. They go to the back room of the restaurant. They have the VIP table. That's kind of like the, the vibe that I was getting from them. And so the fact that they were even coming to my class was like a really big honor. I'm sure Bobby had a lot to do with that. And so here they are in my class. And so I am pulling out all the stops. I'm trying my best to impress these guys because to me they're kind of like the final part of the audience of our student body that I have not yet reached and I really wanted them to be fans of me I wanted them to like me I wanted them to, to see me as a, as a capable teacher I was trying to completely shatter this imposter syndrome that was probably the final bit of doubt about the journey that I was on and so at the end of the class I'm I've got people laughing we're dancing we're having a great time the the lines are just coming and so at the end he says I need to talk to you 
And Mr. Freitas pulls me aside and with, with the same facial expression and body language as like a police sheriff, he's pulling me to the side and it literally all of the same feelings physiologically that go through your body when you get pulled over, like I'm feeling it. It was almost like it was like my boss or, or an actual police officer pulling me over. And he says, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, oh man, here it comes. And they say, you need to get out of here. And so now I'm like thinking, is he actually saying this to me? It's like confirming my dread. Like he's, he's agreeing with it. And he says, you need to get to Hollywood immediately because you got the stuff, kid. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but have you ever responded and your brain heard what your mouth said and your brain is wondering why your mouth just said that. So out of my mouth comes the response of, I could never leave this place. And in my brain, the last remaining particles of my idea of keeping my job as a backup plan completely vanishes. It doesn't even escape my mouth. And that was the moment. And that's the point where I feel like my elephant finally got in check. Now, of course, I would go on to make a bunch of extra mistakes and have peaks and valleys. And I don't think that I could have got to that point. I know I couldn't have got to that point had I not survived that first season. And all of that was done through these weird sequences of events, all these improbable things that came together that kind of defeated the elephant that had been just running rampant all over the career and school path. When I look back at the time before I started with Arthur Murray, it really helps me to understand just how powerful my elephant really was. I mean, I was essentially hitting the snooze button on every opportunity, whether it was school, whether it was career, even in my personal life. I think we can all attest to the fact that your comfort zone has a tractor beam on it and its gravitational pull is pretty strong. On the flip side, the writer in this case, my rational brain, I'm an idea person. And there was no shortage there. So when one part of your brain is making plans and on the other side of your brain, you're finding some way of self-sabotaging, you're going to become pretty frustrated. And unfortunately, we get so used to that pull, we just accept the gravity. And when that gravity doesn't allow you to fly, it's really easy to find fault with the people that do fly. I may have had a chip on my shoulder from someone telling me that I wouldn't be a good dance teacher, but that doesn't mean that I didn't already have shelf space from previous chips on my shoulder. I carried around a lot of unresolved chips on my shoulder, challenges that I felt like I was up against, and really when I look back on that and I peel back the layers, nothing was stopping me from being decisive except for me. That was it. Reminds me of a, of a guy that I grew up with and everybody's got one crazy friend that you know is going to end up in the emergency room. And we used to skateboard together. This guy was a total daredevil and we went on a school snow trip and the guy shows up coming out of the lodge while we're all wearing our, <laughs> our ski clothes and our scarves and our matching beanies. And this guy comes out in a full on wetsuit, like right out of surfing. And he's got some ski goggles and a hat a wetsuit and his ski boots and we're like what are you wearing he's like uh this will keep me warm and so here we are we're kind of going slaloming back and forth down the slope and then we see our buddy go flying down the hill 
in this wetsuit couldn't miss him and he's going straight and we're trying to tell him to stop we're like what are you doing you're supposed to go side by side and he's just zooming down the hill i remember catching up with him and i don't know how long it took me to get down the hill but we get down there and he's already waiting down at the bottom of the run and he's laughing and having a great time and we're like you're not supposed to do that and he's like i got down here in one piece didn't i and that to me sums up why some people just get it and they leave caution to the wind they throw out what the norm might be and they go all in he wasn't hedging his bets at all it was either an adrenaline filled exhilarating thrill ride down the mountain or it was probably going to be a painful thrill ride in one of those ski patrol toboggans that they have for, <laughs> for injured people but here we were going slow side to side hedging all the way down and this guy just took a straight shot and I think the moment that my elephant took the straight shot, the moment that my elephant quit wandering and slaloming from side to side, whether that was by fear or purpose, eventually I found my way. It's pretty normal as an adult to look back on your youth in hindsight and think of all the near-death experiences of all the crazy adventures that you went on. And when I think back to this first year, I really see near-death experiences from my career. If there's one takeaway and one consistent theme, it's that every one of those things in the moment really just felt like a challenge, something that was uncomfortable. And for one reason or another, there was enough purpose, there was enough fear, there was enough just fortuitous circumstance to keep me on the right path. I used path so many times in this episode, but really it was so frail, it was almost like a tightrope. I hope that whatever it is that you're after, whether it's the next level in your career or the next level in your dance program, that you recognize that those uncomfortable moments are the clues that you're going the right way, and it helps you tame that elephant once and for all. I want to thank you for listening to my story, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast, and I would absolutely love it if you would subscribe to it, drop a note in the comments, and share it with your friends. This has been Off the Floor, Episode 18.